Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode of Other People is sponsored by the Pygmalion Literary Festival, taking place in various bars throughout downtown Champaign and Urbana, Illinois, on September 27th and 28th, 2013. The Pygmalion Literary Festival will feature an eclectic lineup of emerging and established authors, many of whom have appeared right here on this program. This year's headliners include Dan Sean, Amelia Gray, Matt Bell, Roxanne Gay, and James Greer, who will be joined by Kyle Miner, Lindsay Hunter, Kathleen Rooney, and many more. And what else, you ask? Well, since the Pygmalion Lit Fest is a collaboration between Ninth Letter, Hobart, another literary journal, and the Pygmalion Music Festival, folks who attend this year will be able to experience a great lineup of musicians like Major Lazer, Dawes, The Breeders, Kurt Vile and The Violators, and The Head and the Heart. Catch the beginning of Kurt Vile's set after hearing Matt Bell and Roxanne Gay read together. Kill time in between Amelia Gray's reading and the Breeders' set by checking out the Pygmalion Book Fair. That's right, there's going to be a book fair too. Or get amped up for Major Lazer by experiencing what happens when Lindsay Hunter, Aaron Birch, and Elizabeth Ellen read together. If this sounds like fun to you, which it should, you can learn more at PygmalionLitFest.com. There you can find the full lit and music lineups uh, that are posted along with other important details. That's PygmalionLitFest.com. This is a literary and music festival slash extravaganza. You can attend it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to be entertaining. This is hoping for your kind attention. Thanks for being here. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. And uh, I want to say 
that. I don't think Los Angeles is an unfriendly place. Uh, yes, it can feel lonely at times. Uh, strange isolation among the masses is possible. That feeling a fragmentary kind of existence. Yes, uh, there's a lot of well-documented narcissism and insecurity and class anxiety uh, roiling in the desert flats. Uh, in this strange metropolis where the weather never changes. But it's hard for me to characterize a city this large and a city this diverse with one particular set of loosely synonymous descriptors. And I mistrust any attempts to do such a thing. It feels cheap to me, and it feels lazy. So, uh, that said, this morning... Uh, I was walking in Los Angeles. I was going to get some caffeine here in town. And I had the very unusual experience of passing five consecutive people. uh, Each of whom individually smiled at me. That's five in a row at about 7.30 in the morning people in their cars, a couple of people on foot, people on their way to work, five in a row, smiling at me. In a span of about seven to ten minutes. And uh, it was unsettling. I started to feel like maybe something was wrong with me. I even tweeted about it moments after the fifth smile. And uh, here's my tweet. Walking through Los Angeles, the last five people I've passed have smiled at me. Not kidding. What the hell is going on? Am I dying? So I have this theory. I have this theory that some days the cosmic energy, for lack of a better phrase, is good. And some days it's not. And the heart of the theory is that everyone can feel it. It's a universal experience, whether it's recognized or it's not. Uh, and this you know, may well be my own narcissism at work. But uh, some days I'll be walking around uh, or driving And it'll be the opposite experience. People are honking. They're screaming at one another and giving each other the finger. Uh, Someone walks, you know, someone will walk past me shouting angrily into his or her telephone. And I'll notice it. It seems to happen in clusters. You know? And uh, when it does... Uh, I will find myself thinking uh, the energy is bad today. The uh, stars, the cosmic forces are producing this. Mercury is in retrograde. <laughs> is it in retrograde? I have no idea. I don't I don't pay attention uh, to that stuff. But uh, of course this can't be true, can it? This can't be true. It has to be a situation where I'm just projecting my own experience onto the masses. It has to be a a situation where perception uh, 
is reality and where the subjectivity of my particular consciousness comes into high relief and functions in essence as a mirror with the outside world offering a mere reflection of my own internal world or something. So uh, the question then becomes, you know, what kind of mood was I in this morning? You know, what kind of mood was I in that produced five consecutive smiles? What, what was it about me? I was wearing a hoodie. It wasn't like I was wearing like a pink chicken suit or anything like, you know, that would uh, automatically generate a reaction. I was inconspicuous. And uh, mood-wise, I was fine. And in truth, uh, I was struggling a little bit internally to stay focused because I was trying to uh, meditate while walking. (laughs) Uh, This is a relatively new thing with me. It's an experiment. It's a little strange uh, here where uh, in the West, I believe. But I do it uh, sometimes in the mornings. I try to walk and I try to focus only on walking. It's actually simple. Just walking and breathing. Just getting my head cleared for the day. And as I was doing this, uh, I was struggling because I wanted very badly to check Twitter. And I wanted to send text messages to friends of mine and so on. So I was struggling against my impulses, which is almost always the case during any kind of contemplative act. But overall, I was feeling fine. I was normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary about my state, as far as I can recall. And people were smiling at me. Everywhere. Which is a good thing. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying. It happened. And as it happened, I told myself... Uh, The energy is good today. Things are going to go my way today. The world is not going to resist me today. Bluebirds will alight from my shoulders. And so on. So now here I am talking to you and wondering to myself, uh, are you smiling? Are you angry? Are you listening? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories.
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest today is Erica Kleinman. She is the author of a book called My Life as a Dyke, which was just recently published uh, as an ebook exclusive by Thought Catalog. I'm very pleased to have her here, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Erica Kleinman, and her book, once again, is called My Life as a Dyke. I'm in Fort Worth right now at my in-law's house. What, Fort Worth, Texas? Yes. Okay. And um, I'm in their guest room, which is, they're kind of they're kind of well-to-do. My father-in-law's a lawyer, <laughs> so it's actually just like a really nice room that actually kind of looks like a hotel. It's got like a black and white decor and really nice sheets and things, and um. It's just really nice. It has like this really nice wooden furniture. We're we're up here visiting um, because we're going to be moving to Costa Rica at the end of June. For what? And um, just just to live. It's a family adventure. <laughs> Holy shit! So, so wait, so wait. Yeah. No, let me let me try to clarify some stuff, okay? Because like I'm coming okay. into this, I'm coming into this relatively cold as I usually do. Um, but yeah. you, you've written a, a book. Uh, it's an ebook that's pu- put out by Thought Catalog called "My Life as a Dyke." Yes. And you are now married to a man and have children and are moving to Costa Rica. That is correct. <laughs> okay. So we have some we have some things that we need to figure. You know, we I need to fill in some blanks here. Okay. Um, so first of all, Costa Rica, you're moving to Costa Rica on, I mean, are you going down there for some, are you going to open a business or are you just going to go down there and like spend a year with the family and some sort of like mosquito coast type thing? Or like what's happening? Um, you know, the plan right now is we, it kind of evolved, um, from a conversation my husband and I had about, um, about where we saw ourselves in like five years as a couple, as a family. And he brought up Costa Rica. His cousin, his favorite cousin lives there. And um, he basically said something to the effect of, like, you know, if anything ever happened to you, I'd probably move there. (laughs) And so we started talking about it, and I was like, well, you know, we could do that now. I mean, we could probably figure out a way to do that if you really want to. And so it just kind of was something we had on our radar. And, as you know, we went to visit in March, and – we really liked it. It's a, it's Monteverde is the community is the, it's in the mountains. Um, and it's like a Quaker community and we really liked it there. Like we really liked the people there. And, um, and so we decided to go for it and we're going to live there for a couple of years. Our daughter is going to go to our older daughter. Who's almost six is going to be going to the Quaker school there. And, um, yeah, we're on a two-year plan, and if it feels like home, then I guess we'll stay. But no, it's not for work, and we don't have a business there. Although I will be working there. What are you gonna do? Yeah, what are you guys gonna do? How are you gonna like pay the bills or whatever uh, when you're in Costa Rica? Well, it's kind of weird. It's um, I'm a speech therapist, um, and I there's a there's a way that you can deliver speech therapy through um, telepractice. And so through, through what telepractice, it's like through the computer, basically. So they go, there's, there's like a really high demand for speech therapists and there's some schools that don't have any cause, um, 
they're like in a really, really rural area where not very many people want <laughs> to move to. Or So they have this alternative method, which is via the computer. And so it's kind of like a live stream video thing where I would be giving speech services to students that are in the U.S., but I would be in Costa Rica. Oh, see, look, the power of technology. You're going to be like, what is it? Like you help kids who have lisps or whatever, or like real, like what kind of speech impediments are you dealing with mostly? Wow. Well, you know, really just anything. I have, um, I, I help students that have like problems with the sounds, like the speech sounds. And also, <laughs> I kind of forget that everybody thinks that speech therapists just kind of are like holding up flashcards going, blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of, I've been doing it for a while now, so I don't. I have to rethink how to explain it, but it's, um, you know, any kind of language-oriented disorder. Like, if they're, like, I see a lot of students that are on the autism spectrum. I see students who stutter, um, and I see students that just have, like, language delays or difficulties expressing themselves with language. Um, yeah, that's... Well, that's, that's the other thing I do. Well, no, that's cool. That's cool. I mean, and it allows you to move to any place in the world, and you can just like Skype it in and get paid. So you guys are moving to the mountains of Costa Rica. Like, how far are you from the coast when you're in Monteverde? It's about. Um, we went to the coast when we were there, and I, there's there's one coast that you can get to that's like an hour away. But like the really nice beaches that everybody really likes to go to are um, like three hour drive away. Okay, because like most people, when you think Costa Rica, they're thinking like surf beaches and what is it, Tamarinda? I forget what the name of it is, but yeah, is that what is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. I'm really not that. Um, I'm not totally familiar with the geography, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just moving. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I I'm just moving there. I have no idea where where anything is. <laughs> <laughs> I just like this one little part of it. Yeah, I think um, you know, for me, the beach was nice. I mean, I liked it, but it's really hot. And um, Monteverde is more like Seattle weather. I mean, it doesn't rain as much, but it's it's just kind of got that climate more where it's nice and it's not it's not too hot. Right. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't want to live in. I'm, I'm not built for the tropics uh, personally. You know. Maybe I could adapt. I mean, I guess you yeah. can adapt to anything, but like, you know, my my DNA is not naturally suited to the tropics. No. Okay. Did, did you grow up in LA? No, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Milwaukee, so there you go. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, I do have some Southern, uh, my genealogy goes down to the South, but I just, you know, not, even my family that is from the South and lives in the South doesn't like the heat, you know, we just sort of melt in the heat. It's not, it's not, and I, you know, to be honest with you, like, I guess there are some people, but when you think about like, you know, a hundred degrees and humid, you know, and then a hundred percent humidity, like that's awful weather. I don't care who you are, but uh, yes, you do see you do see some people who can flourish in that environment, and I don't know quite how they do it. It must be some sort of genetic thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, when I first came to Austin, when I first moved to Austin, which was in like 2000, I actually really liked the heat. It was weird. I, I really felt like it was fine, and it was because I grew up in Seattle and I was in San Francisco for a while. I moved around a little. And, um, but when I moved to Austin, I was like, oh, I like this. This is cool. I like, you know, you can go swimming and, um, you know, I just, I really liked the feeling of it being hot. I wasn't really doing anything though. Um, you know, it was just kind of, my days were very open because I was, I was a stripper. <laughs> oh, you were? So I, 
Yeah, so I had a lot of, like, free time during the day where I could go to, you know, Barton Springs and, like, swim, and it, it was just, you know, it was perfect for me at the time. But now it's I find it oppressive. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it'll be nice to move somewhere where I can actually... So is, can, can anyone move to Costa Rica? I mean, like, do you have to fill out paperwork or get some sort of visa or like you can just move your family down to Costa Rica? No problem. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of weird. I did a lot of research on it because I thought, well, isn't it kind of shady of me to like work on the computer? <laughs> it seems weird. But, um, but apparently that's totally legit. But I mean, basically you move there as, I mean, we're going to be there as tourists. We're not going to be residents. So, um, and I think you have to leave the country for 72 hours, like every three months or something. So people do this all the time. And what they do is they just, you know, they'll go to Nicaragua or Panama or something and just hang out there for 72 hours and come back. Yeah. It gives you an excuse to like go on vacation from the place that you're living. That is kind of like vacation. Like <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. I'm really, um, that's really a, that's... interested in exploring this. This, I mean, this is a cool move, and especially with kids. I mean, you know, because I have a kid now. I'm trying to imagine. Like, that's a big leap, and I think it's it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people talk about, but not a lot of people actually do. Yeah, and actually, we very nearly did not do it because even though it was kind of on our radar, you know, for a while, it kind of felt like we had two paths. Like, we could have gone, <laughs> or we could have been. My husband was also up for this, possibly, like, a really good promotion, which would have been really great for us financially he ended up not getting it and so we were like oh well Costa Rica is coming back into focus now but yeah we we're at a certain point we're like well if he gets this job we're probably not going to do it well what does he and what does he do like is he going to be able to do whatever he does down there or is he just going to kind of you know find something else in Costa Rica you know I think he really wants to possibly I think he's very open as I am too when I'm down there to finding I, I would like to stay in the same profession that I'm in but he um I think he's very open to finding something else. He does um, he does IT support for doctors specifically. He's worked for the same hospital for a long time, and um, he's he doesn't really want to. He's not really that into doing that anymore. But he's um, he can do the IT support thing remotely. So then he would be doing kind of the same thing that I am, which is like computer support. See, you know, for all of my bitching about technology, this is pretty cool. Like that's one of the, I mean, you know, when you can do your job remotely and be living in Costa Rica, uh, you know, I think that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. It is bitching. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, my life as a dyke. <laughs> I, love, okay. I, like saying I like saying that title, but, um, you're saying it sounds totally different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I guess it does, but. Um, you are from, you said orig originally from Seattle. Yes, that's where I was born and born, grew up. Born and grew up in Seattle. And then, mm -hmm. um, what started getting involved with women in your adolescence? Yes. So, you know, this book deals with like what, uh, how, like how many years of your life are you talking? Is it just like a, a short window or does this deal with like your life between the ages of 16 and 30? But the, the the book basically focuses on a time during my adolescence, but it does cover the years between when I started dating women, which was around 15 to now when I'm in this heterosexual marriage and have not been with a woman for many, many years. <laughs> um, but it, I would say that it mostly focuses on my 
like teenage years in Seattle. Um, so, so during you, the go ahead. During the like the queer nation era, queer nation act up era. See, I don't even know what that and is. And during a oh queer nation. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Oh, queer I... nation is fucking awesome. Yeah, it was um, back <laughs> back in the nineties when there just wasn't as much visibility. And, um, you know, kind of in response to the AIDS crisis, there were, um, you know, there was this big push for visibility and being just really in your face about being queer and just like being around, you know, just having people see us. And so Queer Nation was a group that, you know, they went to like suburban malls (laughs) and you would have this affection partner, um, you know, or you could bring your real girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, but, like, you would go and you would be very, very visible. And then maybe stickers that would say, like, assimilate my big old strap-on dildo. And, like, <laughs> it was very, very, um, you know, dykes. I'm trying to think of some of them. I wish I'd, like, actually looked them up recently just because I was wondering what they said. Um, you know, some big butch dyke. You know, it, just, it says things on them that are just very in your face. And then we would, like, literally mud down in these suburban malls. So you participated in these things and like, did anyone ever confront you or get like, you know, was anyone ever hostile towards you when you were doing this stuff? You know, hardly ever. I can't remember a single time. I I mean, I I think, um, I think people, I mean, people would look at us, but you know, in a, I think in the suburbs, I think that when it comes down to it, people are just really not into actual like <laughs> at least not at that time in that context well, but, um, and wait is it is it was it just women or was it women like was it man on man and woman on woman mm-hmm. it was both yeah both okay because yeah. i was gonna say i feel like maybe like the general public is more tolerant of two women getting it on than two men in public but maybe that's just yeah I'm a dude i mean yeah is that true <laughs> yes except that these i mean a lot of the women were obviously not like, I mean, a lot of the women that were involved with crew nation were not like women that were trying to attract men. Well, right. <laughs> so they were like really butch looking or, you know, just <laughs> lesser, you know, it's not, not what you would pro- probably consider in like a male girl on girl fantasy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they're both. And I, and probably, I bet probably for people that were watching the men on men probably was more shocking. I'm guessing. Okay. But, so, I mean, we would be asked to leave by managers and things. but um, Just for making out? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was fun. Okay. So you're 16 years old, and uh, mm-hmm. when does it dawn on you that you're interested in women? And, like, how do you identify? Like, if you're now married to a man and you're involved in a heterosexual relationship, like... Do you, I mean, are you bisexual? Are you, are you no longer gay and you feel like you're now squarely heterosexual? Like, how do you sort that out within yourself? You know, I, I actually still don't know. And I, you know, when I was writing My Life as a Dyke, I, I was part of a writing group. And um, a friend of mine was actually like, you know, I can't really tell at the end of this where you are, like, what is going on? You know, are you gay or you know what are you bisexual and she said as a friend I don't you know it's not a big deal but as a reader I'm really curious what's going on here you know and um I guess I would say that I am still kind of a I, I still identify as bisexual like I feel like I could see myself in the future with a woman probably 
just as easily as a man. Um, but looking back on my but wait, I, I, but, like, but, but you're married, so like in the future, yeah. In the future, oh, I mean, if something if something um, terrible happens, yeah, you're like you're like you're like, <laughs> I mean, you're like after two years in Costa Rica, I'm probably going to leave this dude. <laughs> Go find myself a woman. If we decided to, if we decided to open it up and just you know whatever, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I that's how I think of it hypothetically. Of course, I hope that you know my husband and I, you know, die like those people in that, the Notebook, which I've never seen where they like die holding hands on the bed or something. You don't have to. You know lie. what I mean? It's not you, like you don't have to lie about this. You can admit that you've seen the Notebook. <laughs> I have not seen it. I have not. Um, but. Um, but I've heard about it plenty. Um, but you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. And then when I, when I look back on my experience with women, I was attracted to very masculine women. And um, so, and this was sixteen. And, you're like walking around like the mall or wherever you hung out as a teenager, huh? and you're seeing these like super butch chicks, <laughs> and you're thinking like, I want, I want to get some of that. <laughs> I want to get some of that. Bring that right over here. Yeah, and still, I still feel very attracted to, to butch women um, when I see them. That being said, a lot of times, like sexually, I felt like there was something missing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just really complicated, and I, and I think it can. I think it's possible for it to maybe shift over time or something because the time when I was interested in women, like men were really young and like the men that I was with, they were really disappointing <laughs> sexually. <laughs> and so, like, um, what? like, what do you mean? Like, just like how, so like disappointing, how they didn't know how to, how to, um, they, just, they weren't as connected. Like they were, they were really young and they were just, you know, didn't last very long and they weren't very, um, intuitive. The ones that I was with, I mean, maybe there's this, <laughs> Maybe there's a host of teenage boys that are awesome. But lovers, really, but... really no. Like when you're a teenage boy, like is there any teenage boy who's any good at anything physical? It's just like it's just a mess at that age. It's I mean, it's a mess often I, beyond yeah. that age. But yeah, so I didn't really start dating men again until I was I was in my mid twenties, I guess. When I started dating men again. Like did I you... totally didn't date. Okay, so did you have like any really bad experiences with men? Like, I mean, like like capital B bad. I know it was like disappointing because they didn't know what they were doing. But like, did you have any like gross or like super dark experiences with men that might have turned, oh. turned you off? Um, as a teenager, um, or is it? I mean, any time in your life prior to that? Uh, no, no, I was never molested or anything. Like, I never had like I never had um anybody like go further than I was willing to go. You know, I never had anything like that happen to me. I just found them... I, I just was finding that I didn't feel connected. And, like, connection during sex was really important to me, even at that age. You know, I just didn't feel... I just didn't feel <laughs> like we were gelling. You know what I mean? It felt like we were... It felt like we were covered in saran wrap. It just didn't feel like we were really close, you, you know. Had, and then with women, I felt like it was intense. You had really high standards. Huh? You had really high standards as a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> That's what it was. Uh, connection? Are you kidding me? I'm just like trying to, like, you know, not lose my mind when I was sixteen. I don't even know what I was. Thinking. Yeah, and I think that's what it was. And I think that with women, I think, um, I think there's just a lot more intrigue and a lot more 
connection. Okay, so, so, so when, when's the first time you hooked up with one of these butch girls? Like, how did it go down? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> well, I was dating a girl from high school. Like, we were in high school and we were dating. And um, I dated her for, like, a year. And then we broke up. It was a very, like, dramatic relationship. And then we broke up, and we had me go into this 21 and under lesbian group in Seattle, and um, which was downtown, which I had to take two buses to get to. And um, and I there was a butch girl that was there, and um, she was, like, really butch. Like, she, she looked like Keith or Sutherland. <laughs> she was just really... And so I thought she was really cute, but... Um, she was also like really intense. Like she, she had a lot of anger, and so she always talked about like expressing anger. And well, Kiefer um, Sutherland has a lot of. He feels like he's very intense. You know, he always looks pissed off. Like he just in repose, Kiefer Sutherland looks like murderously angry. <laughs> murderously angry face. Um, yeah, and and but she was really. Um, I ran into her actually, and that's in the book too. This whole the whole book, I was trying to. When I initially started writing and I thought, okay, I'm going to write about, like, what it's like to be in a heteronormative marriage and, um, you know, how to have this past and, you know, all this stuff. It really kind of ended up being about being about one person. Um, and it ended up being about this butch girl who was kind of like my introduction to women. And, um, and so I ran into her and then, you know, she basically, like, asked me on a date. That's another thing, too. Like, I found, I found that butch women were more, like assertive, like, hey, do you want to go out with me? <laughs> and I was talking to a friend of mine who's um, a lesbian, and she was saying, like, she read it, she read My Life as a Dyke, and she was like, I'm kind of wondering, because she doesn't identify as butch or family, and she's like, I'm kind of wondering if that's something that people still do. Like, do they just call themselves butch or what? <laughs> and I honestly have no idea. But um, I call him Butch. I mean, if I see a, a real, if I see a really mask, I mean, what else are you going to say? I mean, it's like, and you know what? It's like, it's just trying to like, there, there are lesbians and you, I mean, you know this as well as I do. There are lesbians that are more feminine and then there are lesbians who yeah. are like in the flannel and like power tools and the whole thing. And it's like, you know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it sounds like, it sounds like you were pretty, I mean, because I feel like a lot of, especially, um, you know, generationally speaking, I think things are changing fairly rapidly now, but um, yeah. You know, back when we were coming, you know, how old are you? We seem like we're probably close in age. In your 30s? I think we are. I think I heard you say that you're 37. I'm 39. Okay. I'm one of your Yeah. Reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, we're the same age, roughly. So, I think when we were growing up, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I know that I guess there was like a, like a few people who were out, like, openly mm -hmm. in my high school. But, like, you know, for a lot of teenagers in our generation, you know, if, if you're gay, that's not something that you're disclosing. Uh, maybe even to yourself, but certainly not to other people. There could be family tension. Like, did you have a traumatic like coming out experience, or was it fairly open up there in Seattle? You know, like what, what was the situation? You know, um, I actually wrote something about this when I was nineteen, and it was in this book called Generation Q, <laughs> and it was basically like all about um, about. It's an anthology from, and you know, nonfiction about um, people people stories who were born after 1969, which was when Stonewall happened, which were these riots in New York that kind of people say now are like the you know the, the beginning of the gay civil rights movement or whatever. Sure. And I heard about my family, and you know, my family was really supportive of me 
Um, How did you come out to them? What did you say? Like, did you do a presentation or did you just like drop it at the dinner table? PowerPoint. <laughs> Before PowerPoint. <laughs> um, I told my mom um, first and she really like the girlfriend that I had at the time. So she was, and she was really, I, I think she had some feelings about it that were, I mean, I think she still went through a process of grieving to an extent. But, um, you know, after that, you know, I told my dad, I told my brother, and um, it, they were really supportive. I mean, I really, um, you know, I just told her, like, I'm gay and I'm dating this girl I'm going to school with that you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, she, she did, like, speaker's panel. My mom and I ended up actually being on the Donahue show together. No shit. Um, yeah, crazy. And it, it was all... This is actually also because of Quakers. Quakers are like, I've been on the periphery of my life for a while, but um, they're, these Quakers in Seattle had these speakers panels that they they sent you to high schools and like community colleges for gay people to like talk about their experiences. So it was kind of like the, the flip side of Quakers. It was like some visibility that we're going to do at the time. <laughs> and, um, and so we ended up getting like this connection because we were in charge of this got a call from the Donya show or something where they were like, do you know any, like, parent, you know, mother, daughter, or, you know, parent, parent, child relationships that are actually positive where the parent is accepting. They're like, Oh yeah, we know. Vicky <laughs> and Erica, you know, so we ended up being on that show. The Phil Donahue show. That's, and, um, that's super old school. That's like pre Oprah. <laughs> no. I'm trying to remember if Oprah was around then. I can't remember. She probably was, but I mean, I, I feel like that was like before she rose to like massive, like the like the capital oh, yeah. of Oprah that we know. But Phil Donahue, you know, he paved the way. Yeah, no, totally. Okay, yeah. so so your family your family was pretty accepting, you know, like so you don't have, you don't come yeah. from, where they are you don't come from like a super conservative household or anything like that. Like it wasn't like one of those situations where no, no okay, they're Seattle, they're hippies, they're really liberal. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, fortunate for you. My mom's from the Netherlands, too. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. So that that kind of, like, healthy expression of sexuality thing is really important to her, even outside of the gay thing. Okay. Okay. So then you're dating in high school, and then that that relationship ends, and then you're going, what, you're taking mm-hmm. bu- you're taking buses to this, what, uh, club? <laughs> what was it, an under-21 club? It was, like, a 21 and under support group with like at the lesbian resource center, which I have no idea if it's even still there. It was on Pine street in Seattle. And, um, on what street, which is like Pine street oh, okay. in Seattle. Have you been there? No, I just, you just broke up a little bit. So I didn't know if, uh, if people listening oh, want to go track it down. Okay. <laughs> on Pine street. I would actually be really curious to know if it's still there, but yeah, I was taking, two buses from my, you know, suburb in, you know, north of Seattle to downtown Seattle to go to this group. I think it's like every Thursday from like six to eight or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was just the only, these were the only young people that I knew except for one friend that I had in high school. Um, and we would just go there and just talk about being gay. <laughs> now they have a whole like house. They have a whole house for gays now, which was actually started by this woman that started the 21 and under group. Oh, okay. Who was under 21 herself. 
So, yeah. okay. And so I think a lot of the lesbians like grew up really fast because a lot of them had been kicked out of their homes and stuff. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, she was able to like mobilize and start this thing, <laughs> start this house because she was so independent. But what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, um, the, so it's at this club that you meet the butch girl that is very heavily, uh, that a lot of your, um, thought catalog book is about. Mm-hmm. And you said mm-hmm. you said earlier that you ran into her there. So like she was just there, and you're in the group talking, and that's where you guys started to chat. Like, how did the actual meeting of this? Group no, okay. So this is how it happened. She was in the twenty one and under group, and then she was gone. Like she'd left, and I remember feeling kind of disappointed. Oh my gosh, wasn't here again. Um, and so I actually ran into her on the street, um, right outside of this community college that's, that's near, that's, that's in like the Capitol Hill slash downtown area. And, um, I was like, Oh, <laughs> like I was excited. And, what was her name? Well, in the book, it's, it's not that. And I actually, I guess I flipped that probably should have used her name, but it's, um, it's Jordan. Can you like cover it up? Something I could say that like later and you could like cover it up. <laughs> well, just what's what's her name? But, um, what's, her, what's her name in the book? Jordan. Okay, Jordan. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And I find it so hard to, like, change names, but, you know, it's heavy done. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I ran into her outside of the community college, and we were like, hey. And we kind of, I mean, it just felt like there was a little chemistry. And then she told me that she wasn't going to the 21 and undergroup anymore and that um, she was going to Queer Nation. And that's, I went there solely because I was interested in her. Like, I was like, I want to. <laughs> and so I started going, but it it ended up like starting this, you know, 10 year plus, um, you know, gay activism period for me, which, you know, my activism isn't, isn't in that way anymore. And I, I don't think many people, <laughs> and I don't think it's, I don't think that that kind of thing is around anymore where you're going to malls and making out and like, doing these, you know, there were all these initiatives, these anti-gay initiatives at the time that we would go and, like, stand with the petitioners and talk about why they shouldn't put this anti-gay initiative, why they shouldn't vote for this. And, um, you know, now it seems to be more like around the marriage quality thing. But, um, but yeah, so I started, then I just started going to this, this thing, and it ended up being a real positive experience. We ended up dating for a while. Okay, so a couple things. First of all, like you genuinely got, you were genuine. Like once you showed up, like you were just chasing this girl basically when you showed up at Queer Nation. But once you got there, you became authentically involved. It wasn't just like I'm an activist now trying to like hook up with this girl. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. This is where all the hot witch girls are. I am in. Yeah. Um. No, it was. Yeah, I became. I started realizing how important it was. Right. You know, I came from a very. I wasn't sheltered. You know. I was living in the suburbs, you know, with, you know, middle-class family where I didn't have, you know, um, any idea really what deep all this stuff went, you know, in terms of gay rights and, and what you would have to do to actually get them and, you know, what, what kind of stuff we grew up against at the time. Right. And so, and then uh, the girl, Jordan, like, when did you guys start to become romantically involved? Like, did you make the first move or did, did she... No, she did. No. Yeah. I mean, not that I've never made this first move now, but like, yeah, at the time 
pretty shy. We, we started dating, like, I would say probably a couple of weeks or a week after <laughs> I went to that first donation meeting. All right, so were you, like, and this is the first butch girl that you'd ever hooked up with, right? So previously your high school, yes. your high school girlfriend was like this kind of like, I could, you know, I'm, I could be totally wrong, but I'm picturing just like sort of a normal suburban femme lesbian, yes. right? And then now you're I'm actually kind of androgynous too, but not not butch. Like okay. I wouldn't. I don't think anybody would ever describe her as manly. Okay, so now anything. so now you're hooking up with Jordan, who is like Kiefer Sutherland personified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiefer were, Sutherland. Were you were you uh, were you intimidated? Were you like, oh shit, like this is going to be way more intense than anything I've ever experienced before, or was was it? You know what I'm saying? Because like, was she more yes. was she more or less masculine than you anticipated once things got intimate? Well, when things got intimate, it was really different. Like, I mean, it was like I didn't feel like, I mean, even though he kind of looked sort of managed, like I didn't, I didn't feel like he was a man or anything like that. Like, it was it was interesting because he, you know, having when we had sex and all that, that was it was just like having sex with her and the butch thing, like, I guess was kind of irrelevant. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I guess it must've meant something, but he, he was very dominant, like, or she was very dominant. I should probably clarify that she's a man now. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but yeah. Like had an but, actual, had, um, an, had an actual sex change. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. To, I don't know to what extent, but like he started taking testosterone several years ago and, Um, but okay. But that's like, this is actually, again, I could be, it just could be my, uh, cluelessness, but like, you know, when someone is butch, like a butch lesbian, like a very masculine woman, it's still a woman, you know, like, so I can understand like the presentation, you know, like the short hair and the flannel and the chains and the whatever. But like at the end of the day, it's still not like having sex with a dude because like guys are just, no, right. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, and he was, he, she was really into, um, SM too, which was also brand new for me. Like, I didn't do any of that stuff with my first girlfriend. I mean, I'd had those kind of fantasies before, but not, like, like, literally on our first date, <laughs> we, went to her, we went into her room, she had her own apartment, and, um, she had, like, all this leather stuff, and I was like, oh, you really like leather. <laughs> like, I had no idea what that meant at the time. Innocent, but um, yeah, and like all the I don't know if you've heard of Pat Califia. No, she wrote this book called She's also a man now, but she wrote this book called Macho Sluts. <laughs> it was all about like so it's a children's it's a children's book. It's a children's book. It's got some illustrations <laughs> by the same guy who did Where the Wild Things Are. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> It's like really hardcore. It was like the most hardcore thing I'd ever read. I think at that point, which I guess nowadays I probably would have come, come across that kind of thing a lot sooner. But um, yeah, I mean, I read that, and you know, we started. She started kind of educating me, and um, you know, that's funny because the blurb for Thought Catalog said she met a host of butch women who were more than willing to share the ropes, which just made me laugh so hard. But then it kind of was true, like. <laughs> She was just, you know, showing me this, you know, exploring this SM thing with me where she was very experienced and I was not. And um, You're saying S&M, I liked you're it. saying S&M, right? 
Yeah, okay. Okay. SM. Okay, SM, SM. I always called it SM. Oh, you did? Okay. I always, I've always heard it say S&M. But so what, you know, I, I've had people on this show, I've had a domin- I've had a, two dominatrixes on this show. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is the, I mean, I guess the allure is pretty much the same for people who are into that. Like, uh, you know, I've, been, I've, I've actually been doing revisionist history in my head lately because I was talking to Kendra Graham Malone, one of the dominatrixes recently. <laughs> And uh, also a, uh-huh. you know, a fine poet, but she was saying that, uh, you know, it's like just like pe- some people like spicy food. Some people like to be uh, tied up during sex or like, you know, they're, like they like pain with their sex or whatever it is. And, I, and I'm sort of like, yeah, you yeah. Know, I, but, but you know what? I, I get that analogy. Like some people like spicy food, but like I feel like when you're involved in like at like hardcore S&M, it's like you like spicy food, but you like it like. In your orifices. Portion. <laughs> yeah. I like food in my orifices. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, just, um, it's, it's like taking... Each one. Yes, yeah, it's like it's a little bit more hardcore than just liking spicy food. So, like, do, do you know why you're into that? You know, I don't know, and I can say that it, it's, it fluctuates. Like, I mean, it fluctuates a lot. Like, I, my husband and I don't, like, spend all this time, like, chaining each other up. We, I mean, partly because we have two kids and the the time that we have to do things like that is like a lot more limited. <laughs> but um but there's definitely a lot of power in our relationship sexually. And and I think that's what you're playing with when you're doing it, when you're having an S and M S M S and M relationship. And um, you know, it's not you know, some of the time it's gonna be normal sex, it's not. It doesn't involve those power plays. But I think when you're playing, like when you're doing that kind of dynamic, um, I think that's what you're playing. You're just playing with who's in control, and I'm going to give you control, and then, you know, it's just, it's just, it's really just playing. Yeah, it's interesting, you know. I don't know. I feel like, uh, I feel like it's it's very alien to me, personally, so I'm just always fascinated mm-hmm. by, by how it works, you know, and how people psychologically get there, but I guess, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat, you know. So you've never done anything that's like, I'm like so boring. I would not be. I would not be able to keep a straight face. <laughs> Your wife is thinking. You would. You would it. Okay. Yeah. No. I would um, just be, I, I'm too self conscious. I would be like outside of the. I can't be like in the moment with that. I would be. I would be watching the experience, just going, "What the fuck am I doing?" <laughs> wow, that's funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've always been very. I've always been very playful sexually. So to me, like, that stuff was never really all that dark or scary or anything because I was like, oh, this is just another way of, you know, exploring <laughs> the dynamics of the relationship to me. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's got a little bit of theater, which I also like, you know. Sure. Well, yeah. Well, you wound up stripping at some point, so clearly, right? I mean, I, and I want to, I want to, like, figure yeah. out, I want to figure out how, that, like, all of this happens. So, like, you're in, okay. Just to make sure we try to <laughs> trace this line, you're in Seattle. You're, yes. You're dating. You're in high school. You're involved with Queer Nation. You have a decade of your mm-hmm. life between adolescence and, I guess, like what your mid to late twenties where you're active, and then eventually you get mm-hmm. to San. Like, did you go to college? Did you you went to San Francisco? Like, how do we get to there? No. Yeah, I dropped out of high school my senior year, and um. I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> I was really close to graduating, actually, but I was just like, I was a very poor student at that time, and I really didn't want to waste more time on it, and I didn't see myself going to college. Nobody in my family had gone to college, but um, 
I was just really interested in um, having a good time. And, like, I didn't like to work. I still don't really like to work, but um, I just wanted to chill and, like, go to coffee in the daytime and stuff and, you know, just hang out. And I was writing, too, intermittently. Um, and I, the way I got into stripping is <laughs> there was actually this group of very sexy bisexual women in the community. Like, they're all bisexual. They were all, like... In Seattle? really attractive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think I kind of, they, they were all working, have you ever heard of the Leslie Lady? I think I have heard of the, in, no, but it's in Seattle. It's in Seattle, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had, I've never heard, I mean, the Lusty Lady, that's a strip club. Yeah, it's a peep show. Oh, like okay. the Like the Madonna video. Okay. Yeah. No, I've never. I don't, I don't think. I, I don't think I'm familiar with the lusty lady. I don't know why that rang a bell. But I thought for some reason there was one in San Francisco, but there is. There's one in San Francisco too. Oh. Okay. So yeah, that may be why I've heard of it, but I don't think I've been there. Okay. Yeah. You put like a quarter in. I mean, I don't know how it works anymore. I know there's only there's one in San Francisco, but I don't know how it works anymore. But you put a quarter in, and then like this window goes up, and you see this group of women dancing naked, and um. You know, in a group, I guess, and they come up to your window and they're like all seductive and everything. Anyway, I thought that that was really sexy, and I really wanted to. I really admired this group of bisexual women <laughs> who I thought were not only like really sexy and interesting, but just like had that uh, like that extra quality of just being. I don't know that like kind of unnameable quality of, of being really uh, I, intriguing. I, I, I admire them right now. I've never even met them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, and with good reason. So, um, so yeah, so then I found out that they were all working there. So another friend of mine and I got really intrigued with it. And like, Maybe we should try that, you know, because then we wouldn't have to, like, work all the time. And so we, um, we went downtown like that, you know, when I was, like, I think I was 19 or 20. I can't remember. And we went and visited them <laughs> at this place. And... Um, you know, they told us how to get a job there, and we got a job there, and I ended up working as a stripper on and off for, like, like nine or ten years. Wow. Okay. And you can, but you can make Mostly good... off, I have to say. Okay. But you can make good money stripping. That's one That's one aspect of it that's uh, that's really positive. It's like, there are women out there who are making a killing doing this. Oh, yeah. That was never me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was never me. No, I was a terrible stripper in that sense. I was a pretty good hustler, but what would happen is I would, like, work. And especially once I moved to Austin because I was working at lap dancing clubs at that point. Like, it was a lot It was a lot less comfortable yeah. for me. Like, like, I was I... still doing it because I, I think for me it was like I just didn't want to give up that freedom of having all my days to myself. <laughs> right. You know, and I didn't want to work. I didn't really want to work. So I could work, like, three or four days a month. And then I think I was also really depressed. So I think that, um, About you know, what? I just wasn't like really self-motivated. Um, well, I don't know. I think I had problems with depression and, um, like just chemically, you know, you're, you're chemically what? depressed. I think so. I mean, I've never taken antidepressants or anything, but I, I had had a ton of therapy, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I was really feeling stuck for a while with stripping and not not able to figure out. I was kind of thinking that I just didn't have any other skills and that, um, 
you know, I was writing, but I wasn't really applying myself in that sense either. And I think that I was having a real problem with applying myself. And so I ended up doing it for a much longer time than I felt comfortable, which is a very common story, you know, that I've found from talking to women that have danced. Like, yeah, it's really hard to get out. Well, that's the thing is like, you're, you're like, I'm going to do this for a couple of years, just avoid work and, you know, have my days to myself. But then it's like, how do you replace that income? And like, what else do you do? You know? And it's like, yeah. Plus, like, did you find that it was like, uh, did it did it hurt your soul at all to be like grinding on these guys' laps every night for money? Like, did that bum you out or, or change the way you felt about men? You know, I don't. I don't think that it really hurt my soul to do that. Um, I think. I mean, I think that there was definitely some self-esteem going on, some self-esteem stuff, but, like, grinding on men didn't make that any worse or better. Like, I mean, I think that, you know, there are times, I think any anybody that danced, and I was definitely no exception, like, I think there were some times, like, oh, I can't believe I did that for, like, that money. You know what I mean? It was just, like... I really didn't want to come back next week. <laughs> like, if you start kind of, I mean, you kind of go, for me, Some there were times when I went, like, beyond my boundary. So. Like how so? Um, oh, well, like, you know, I would, it's, it's a bottomless, like, it's a topless club here, and I was like, I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal, I guess, to, like, flash my bottom or whatever like that. But, you know, just show my pressure or whatever, like, for extra money. And that's the thing is that you're you're doing things for money, and I guess that could be kind of I guess my soul could have taken a hit from that, but I always kind of felt like it was more that I just didn't know how I think it was more the feeling that I was giving myself away cheaply and not because um of the men particularly okay, so like and this is a, that this makes is sense. a yeah, it does make sense, and like here's a here's a question from a guy's perspective. Uh, when you're dancing, mm -hmm. what what kind of guy is like the ideal? Uh, aside from a guy who's <laughs> just got like uh, you know five thousand dollars in his pocket, like what is the ideal mm -hmm. interaction that you want? Because like this is me, like being neurotic the way that I am. Like you know the times that I've uh -huh. been in strip clubs and there's some girl dancing, I I'm like, what do I say to you? Like, to, hey, how are you doing? And like you know you're getting. I, I start to do small talk. I start to ask about. You know, it's like this. Yeah. I'm trying to do a podcast, essentially, <laughs> while, while a, a woman is giving me a lap dance. I can't handle it. And I don't know, how, like, what am I supposed to do? Were you supposed to just sit there quietly or tell jokes or, you know, it's a very awkward scenario for me. Yeah, you know, it's such a weird scenario. I mean, even even after doing it tons, like, every time, I was just like, I wonder how this is going to play out. Am I just going to be stressful? You know, um, I would say the really... Honestly, for me, and I think probably a lot of women would feel this way too that would dance, but I, I can't speak for everybody. But for me, I really preferred, <laughs> this sounds so bitchy, but I preferred like really seasoned customers who would like sit down, like they would talk to you and be human to you. But um, I didn't really like questions that were aimed at getting to know me at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Because I had a, I had a <laughs> yeah, you would have been my nightmare customer. Oh, girl. No. <laughs> um, 
No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, 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 you're not. And I don't, and it I, also is really, I, don't, I don't take any offense. Like, that's honestly how I am. I'm like, so where are you from? And like, you know, what was your childhood? Like, and they're just like, dude, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Does your dad know you do this? Um, <laughs> you know, and it also depended on the money, frankly. I mean, if, if there was a guy that was like, I want to get to know you a little bit and was saying a lot, then that's what I mean. It just sounds terrible, but that was kind of the nature of that interaction. Sure. And, um, and so I'm trying to think of like some of my favorite customers. And I have to say there was, that was like a really big film buff. And so, and he would spend like massive amounts of cash and he had like a few favorites. And I just happened to be one of those favorites because I uh, really love film too. And so we would sit there and talk about David Lynch and stuff. And like, <laughs> that was actually fun. So wait, you're like doing like a headstand, he, you're like doing like a headstand in his lap, like talking about like blue velvet or like, what was, what does this look like talking about? <laughs> I've never really... <laughs> never really good at this trick. That's kind of, I mean, besides not being a very good, um, you know, money maker, I was also kind of lazy. So, um, I never relied on conversation a lot, actually, even though, but not about me. So, um, so, I mean, basically, most of the time you're going to be sitting and getting bounces. Say again? And most of the time you'll be sitting and not getting bounces. Um, I mean, most of the time I was, not you, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, um, but yeah, that's the kind of customer that I usually prefer to somebody that was like cordial, spent a lot of money and, um, you know, didn't try to get too close. <laughs> didn't try to, didn't try to like help you. Mentally. Or, yeah. Right. Psychically. I get it. I get it. Oh yeah. That was the worst. That right. was the worst, honestly. Right. And a lot of times those guys would be really religious. Oh. They would say they were. Right. No, but yeah. like I've, I've, I honestly have been, cause I have this, you know, and I've, I've, I'm annoyed with myself. So like, I don't, <laughs> I, I get what's wrong with me, you know, but like I can genuinely, I can recall being in like Las Vegas at a bachelor party and being at a strip club oh. and being drunk and being like, you need to go to college or, you know, just some <laughs> fucking conversation. It's just bad. <laughs> You're like, dude, I'm you're sorry. at the you're at the spearmint rhino. Just go with it. Like, you don't need to like give somebody like a consultation on their education or something. Yeah, you know. Um, Did you get a lap pencil for that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I was paid. Who yeah. knows? I, you know, who knows? Just for college, goddamn it, sit <laughs> on it. <laughs> get your degree. Um, it just feels so stupid in retrospect, you know. Uh, so okay, so you're doing this in Austin. And, you know, it's one of the things that's refreshing about uh, talking with you is just how open you are about how lazy you are <laughs> yeah. and how you yeah. don't you don't like to work. I think that's the, I think that's like sort of especially in the American in, in American culture. It's like such a sacrilege to be lazy, you know, because we're know. Uh, we're an up by the bootstraps people. But like, you know, some people <laughs> just don't like to work. I think a lot of people don't like to work. They have to work. But they don't like to, and you found ways to work minimally. It sounds like, and still get by. Like, have you ever had? Like, do you have any help from your family, or, or are you just like you just happy to kind of like live simply and avoid like shitty jobs? Oh man, no! I've totally had help from my family. Yeah, especially during that period. <laughs> like they they knew that I was tripping in the beginning, but they were so distressed by it that I you know I took time off from dance. I wasn't like ten years straight or anything, but like. Just one of the times that I stopped for a while, I just was like, oh, yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. And then when I started it again, I just never told them. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, I've had help from my family over the years, and not for a while. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, the job that I'm doing right now, I'm actually way less lazy because I can't afford to be and because, um, you know, I'm providing for a family and everything. So it's more, um, but, you know, yeah, if I have my brothers, I probably, and this and Costa Rica might help this happen a little bit. But, um, yeah, I'd like to take some, I'd like to relax. Yeah. There's also an enormous amount of paperwork that comes with my job, which I find really tiring. But the actual therapy, like working with kids, I love that. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a nice job, too, because you're genuinely helping people. You can probably see, like, measurable results and, like, you're affecting their lives. Yeah. You know, that's a good – that's good work, I think. Yeah, it's way better. So, uh, so, okay. So, how does this end? Like, how does the stripping – like, how does the stripping lesbian – uh, period of your life end and how do you transition into like married heterosexual mother of children? Well, you know, I mean, I started dating guys and I was actually dating a guy when I moved to Austin. At that point, I was already dating guys. I hadn't, you know, that relationship was really on again, off again. And so during the off again periods, I would date women sometimes. Um, what, what was then, it? What was it like going back or going to men? Like, had you ever been with a man before? Like, when was the first time you hooked up with a guy? I had never had an orgasm with a man, but I had been with a man before. Yeah, I'd been with men. I mean, I was with men during my teenage years, and then, you know, for a couple oh, times right. in San Francisco, right? I dated a guy. Um, I had, I had some threesomes where there was a guy there, <laughs> and then. Um, but, you know, it was very, like, infrequent, and I didn't have any serious relationships with guys until I was 25 and I started dating this guy in Seattle. Okay. And he came to Austin with me, and then we broke up, and then I dated women a little bit more, and then I fell in love with my husband, who was actually a really good friend of mine, and I was still dancing. And then I had already told myself that I was not going to dance by age 30. That was like my cutoff. <laughs> that was just my cutoff. And so I found out, I, didn't, I actually was so ignorant about how to get into college. Like I knew at that point that I wanted to be a speech therapist, but I just thought, oh, I can't afford college. Like I'll have to pay for it myself. It would be too hard and I don't want to do it. And then my future husband, who's my husband now, told me that you could get student loans and like told me about the whole process, which I had no clue about. And so... I applied and then I got accepted, you know, I got financial aid and started going to community college here in Austin. And, um, and then I just started, started going to school and I just kept going and I stopped dancing at that point. You retired. Did you have like a retirement party or anything? <laughs> oh, that would have been awesome. Like a six foot sub um, and a cake or. That would have been killer. I actually was kind of going through like a very like friendless period at that time. <laughs> So it probably would have been hard. I was kind of like leaving, you know, the key thing that really happened is my brother died. Oh God. And so, yeah. So he, and he was 26. What happened? And, um, he died of a, a drug interaction. Like he struggled with drugs his whole life and he got really into speed and he took a bunch of speed and then he took some sort of barbiturate or something. And so it just had this really bad reaction for his body and totally like he had total organ failure and like he was completely brain dead and stuff. So that happened Ugh. like right when I was 29. And so, yeah, it was really hard. And my husband and I just started dating oh, at that time. Right. So it was just like, really yeah, you're not, dan- <laughs> I remember calling him. You're not dancing. After, like, you're not going to be in the mood to dance in the wake of something like that. 
Yeah, yeah, there was that too. And I would I had been experimenting with speech a little bit myself. Like it was like you know, there are a couple weekends when I did it. I think I did it for like four weekends in a row or something. I was like, I like this stuff and then that happened with my brother and I was like, I don't think I like this stuff. No. <laughs> you know, I mean it's just it was just really pivotal in that sense. And I'd already decided I don't know if I really would have stopped. I think I would have. I was I was pretty good about keeping those like those kinds of promises to myself. And so, but when my brother died, I like literally didn't go back even once. Yeah. So, but I'd already been planning to do that. That's a heartbreaker. That's a heartbreaker. That sucks. Yeah, it really, it was really hard. Um, and I was actually just talking to somebody whose sister died recently and, um, you know, just, it reminded me of that period where it was just really, just so painful where you're just, you really can't think about anything else and you feel really alone with it because nobody wants to talk about it with you. Um, it just makes people so uncomfortable. Um, and I don't know, it just made me realize like, I feel sad about it sometimes. Like he, his birthday was May 12th and like, I felt sad, but nothing like the first like couple of years, the first couple of years are really hard. And then after that, it's like, you might have moments where you feel it and then, um, but it's not anywhere near that intensity. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, time, me. t- well, you know, and like, I mean, it's always going to be there, but I think time really does heal. I mean, at least in some way, like yeah. you're always going to have the scar and there's going to be moments where the pain like resurfaces. But, you know, the thing about it's weird, like as human beings, like you can't sustain that level of intensity of it or the level of intensity of any emotion, you know, whether it's positive yeah. or negative, like you just can't physically do it. <laughs> Uh, or emotionally, yeah, sure. emotionally do it. So you find ways to adapt. And, um, you know, I was talking to Emily Rapp on this show and, and she just lost her child. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it's like, you, yeah. she says though, you know, like human beings are built to withstand a lot more than they think they can withstand. And I think that's true. You know, like you think like if the worst happens, you're just going to like shrivel, but you know, life goes on and you find it ways, does. you find ways to move forward and, you know, I don't know, compartmentalize or heal or whatever it is that you do to, to not go insane. <laughs> yeah. Her book is probably like one of the best books I've ever read about that whole, like just grieving and fighting her way. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's but, like, it's um, a, it's a really, you know, smart and, uh, it's intense. Like, you know, I found like, I think Emily's approach is, um, a lot more unblinking than most. You know, yeah. she really confronts. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I actually had to read it twice because when I first read it, I was like, oh, I don't think I like this. <laughs> and then I was like, I kept thinking about it and I was like, I'm going to have to read that again. And so I did. And it's just, yeah, I love that book. I like her other one too. Sure. Okay. So, okay. Well, I didn't, I mean, that was sort of a curveball. I wasn't expecting you to tell me that your brother had passed away, but like you're 29 and then, um, mm-hmm. you're dating your husband, your now husband and you, you know, then this yeah. big trauma happens and then you're sort of like, that's the big shift. It sounds like that's like, you know, you, you, you then like, how long was it before you got married? You then shifted into a committed relationship oh. with him pretty shortly thereafter. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about it a lot and like, you know, we were friends for, you know, three years and then we started dating and then I think a shift had already started to happen with me. I mean, I'd started seeing a therapist and I was able to like 
break some pretty negative relationship patterns I had. And like, like what? It kind of confronted things in my own life. Well, I was dating um, this guy who, you know, didn't love me, basically. <laughs> I kept on... I kept on at it, you know, I just kept on dating this guy and not knowing how to get out of it. He's also, you know, he's barely in the recovery. He was a heroin addict and he was like just starting to recover. And it was just, you know, it kind of, I thought that there was all this stuff wrong with him and that's why we were having such a terrible time. But it turned out that, you know, there was all this stuff I didn't complain about myself. Like, you know, I was talking earlier about giving myself away cheaply for dances, and, you know, I was kind of doing that in my relationships, too. And just, like, self-esteem, so, st- like self-esteem stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't explain totally why. I mean, I've always felt loved as a child and everything. I just really struggled with um, romantic relationships. Well, you know, but I don't think I don't think that's necessarily uncommon. I mean, I feel like people, you know, you know what? Well, you know what I think? I mean, it, it takes on different forms, but I feel like people when it comes to mm-hmm. intimate, when it comes to intimacy and relationships, anybody who's not mm-hmm. in a really good, uh, you know, and good is in quotes because, you know, there's all different kinds of good relationships. And even in a good relationship, there's struggles. It's just it's always difficult with human beings. But, you know, anybody who's not yeah. who hasn't like found their buddy or their mate or whatever. Uh, and who's not in a really good committed relationship is struggling with relationships. <laughs> you know, like I don't know anybody who during who who I you know who's single or who during my single years wouldn't fall into that category in some way. Like I, I mean, I remember being single and being like, "Why can't I do this?" You know, <laughs> like when am I gonna yeah. when am I gonna find somebody that I actually fit with or that I'm actually interested in? You know, in a, in a well, and you know. Wait, can I finish? No, I was just going <laughs> to say interested in, in a deeper way or in a, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like somebody you were really interested in spending time with. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like until I was able to break that particular pattern with me of like, you know, getting myself over to these relationships where I just wasn't reciprocated in the same way. I don't think, I mean, I was friends with my husband for a long time and we were really close and I did not recognize him as somebody that I could have that type of relationship with until I started really working on breaking those, breaking that witty, that person, you know, just sort of shifting my perspective with relationships that, you know, I had to watch and see if anything was being given back to me and, you know, what to do if it wasn't. Right. Um, well, and it's interesting too, that like, you know, with this, this, uh, you know, with your set of life experiences between what, 15 and 30, uh, that you wind up with a guy who's from Fort Worth and who's, you know, uh-huh. I mean, that's a pretty conservative area. So like, what is, what is it like? And what is it like being in Texas? And you got this book out called my life as a dyke. I mean, I guess like, you know, there's pockets of, there's pockets of acceptance everywhere, but do you ever feel like, uh, you know, I don't know, stranger in a strange land with this particular book and this particular set of life experiences. Yes, totally. Um, my friends have all been really supportive. I, I, I gave my friends, you know, a link to the book and everything, and most of them bought it, I think. But like, and everybody that read it was like, "Awesome, you're so great." Um, but yeah, I mean, my friends here are heterosexual, most of them, and you know, haven't had experiences like that that they've shared with me anyway. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm known as among my friends. I'm kind of like, Derek has done everything. You know, like that's kind of a, 
a thing. But, um, and in fact, I dressed up in drag for this Halloween party, and I, I happen to know a lot of tricks for <laughs> dressing up in very convincing male drag. And um, I really look like a guy. Like, it's very disconcerting. <laughs> and I went to this Halloween party, and um, it really freaked people out. There were a couple people that were totally fine with it, but, like, people were like, that's a little bit hardcore for me. <laughs> like, and I don't think I would have had that, that reaction in Seattle. I think people would have been like... In fact, I've done it in Seattle, now that I think of it, and it was not like that at all. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I'm kind of hanging out with different people now, and I'm a little older, and, you know, a lot of people haven't done any of that stuff, so they're just like, why? Why are you doing this? And, and what, about, so, what about, like, your in-laws? Like, what, do you have, like, your, your mother-in-law reading, like, My Life is a Dyke, or? You know, I haven't given it to them, and I actually, you know, since I'm here, they know that I'm having an interview and I'm just kind of, I was just kind of trying to meet them where they're at. Like I was going to be honest no matter what they said, but I haven't told them about the book yet. I haven't told my own parents about the book yet. Oh wow. Um, well, I probably will soon. Maybe they're listening. I'm kind of doing it. <laughs> so, I'll probably let my mom hear this for sure. But, um, and then she'll know about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I told recently, I told my father-in-law, he's like, I told him that I've been writing again and, um, that I was, publishing stuff and he said oh what are you what are you publishing and i said oh it's a you know i've been publishing stuff about like all the terrible things i've done <laughs> and he was like oh because he's, he's well aware of some of them like they both they know i'm bisexual and they know that um they know, they know i've been really interested with women and they know that um that i'm a stripper okay because i'm picturing like i'm picturing like J.R. ewing like where you are and for um you know yeah, pic- he's here is he okay? No, Larry Hagman actually. Uh, R.I.P. He passed away this, you know, recently. But I know. I mean, it, it's. I, I mean, Fort Worth seems like super ultra, like George W. Bush conservative. But I guess there are people. I mean, there's all kinds of people everywhere. Yeah, no, it's true. It is it's totally conservative. My my father-in-law and my mother-in-law are not. I really lucked out. Um, with that, my husband's my husband's mother and stepdad are pretty conservative. Like, I probably would never tell them about it. If they found out, I'd be okay with that. But I don't think I would share it with them. You're not going to break that out of Thanksgiving? Like. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, especially since I talk about my husband and I play him rape. And <laughs> 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 I don't know. That doesn't seem like it would feel good to tell them about it. But, could... but if, they, if they knew about it, that'd be fine. Wait, you, you, and your, you, know? you and your husband, you said play rape? We play rape a little bit with each other, consensually. Wow. Um, it's just like another example of that power dynamic. Yeah, you know. Sure. That I talked about earlier. Wow. Okay. Well, that you know that seems like a good closing note. The playing rape closer. <laughs> I've never I've never done that before. I feel like it's the, I'm breaking the ground. So you yeah, yeah. I you probably had it. You said that you weren't. We're going to be trying spankings anytime soon. <laughs> well, you know, I'll think it over. I don't know if my wife's going to go for playing right, but we'll, we, I'll, I'll broach the subject. Uh, so, uh, anyhow, it's been fun talking with you and like really enlightening and uh, interesting. And I congratulate you on the book, and I wish you Thank well. You. I wish you guys well on the move to Costa Rica. That sounds exciting. Thank you so much. All right, folks, there you go. That's Erica Kleinman. Go get her book. It's called My Life as a Dyke. It's available now in ebook format from Thought Catalog. You can find Erica online at ericakleinman.wordpress.com. She's on Twitter at ekleinman, and I believe you can find her on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars as usual. 
for all the good music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget about the app, the Other People app, the official app of this program. It is available now free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes and organize uh, that way. And you can also access premium content and the full archives via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Okay, so uh, I'm not complaining. Just to go back full circle uh, to what I was talking about at the top of the show. I'm not complaining about people smiling. Obviously. It's nice. It's better than the alternative. I'm I'm just wondering why. I'm raising the question. Is there a reason for it? Is it pure coincidence? Is it a random accident? Uh, Was it just a case of uh, awareness? Was I simply aware of it this morning, whereas on other mornings I am not? That would be kind of nice. You know, like perhaps this kind of thing happens all the time and uh, I simply don't notice it. Perhaps... Uh, This morning I was projecting some sort of unusually good positive energy as I attempted uh, to meditate while walking while at the same time dealing with the overwhelming urge to read Twitter and receive an iPhone-generated shot of dopamine. I don't know. I feel like that's a representative experience. That's life today in a nutshell for human beings. Everybody walking around trying to resist the urge to stare into their telephones. And for the most part, failing miserably. Please remember that Sophocles' father manufactured swords and that William de Kooning's father was a beer distributor. That's it for now. I hope you enjoy today's show. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you to Erica Kleinman. I'll be back again soon with another episode, another author, another conversation about uh, whatever comes up. Uh, That's it. I'm going to go for another walk, perhaps later, with my dog. Uh, I'm going to test the cosmic energy in the city. I hope it's good. I hope it's friendly. Uh, I'm going to try to focus on walking, and I'm going to try to stop my uh, my incessant mental rambling. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to do it. There's nothing there. It's a void. It's a vacuum. And it's trying to suck me in. (laughs) 